Ophthalmology Off the Grid is supported by Elevro from Alcon. Open, outspoken, it's Ophthalmology Off the Grid, an honest look at controversial topics in the field. I'm Gary Wirtz. When you're picking a lens for your cataract patients, toric eye wells are a much-loved option. However, the process for selecting the appropriate lens can be complex, especially when you're working with multiple measurements from different devices. To start off this episode of Ophthalmology Off the Grid, I interviewed one of Baylor's great ophthalmologists, Dr. Sumitra Kanawal, to hear her thoughts on posterior corneal measurements and which tools are best for acquiring the most accurate information. Gary Wirtz with Ophthalmology Off the Grid, and today we have with us Dr. Sumitra Candlewall. And Sumitra, we're really excited to talk to you about your practice and the expertise that you bring to toric IOLs um, and uh, especially posterior astigmatism. But before we get into all that, I'd just like you to give us a little bit about your background, tell me a little bit about your training, and uh, we'll just kind of go from there. Sounds great. Thanks, Gary, for having me here on Ophthalmology Off the Grid. Um, I had some fantastic training. I started out my residency at Emory Eye Center in Atlanta, Georgia, um, and then went on to do a cornea fellowship at Minnesota Eye Consultants uh, with Dr. Lindstrom, Dr. David Harden, Dr. Tom Samuelson, Dr. Liz Davis. Um, And now I am incredibly lucky to be at Baylor College of Medicine as assistant professor. I work with some excellent colleagues, including Dr. Douglas Koch, Dr. Mitch Weikert, and Dr. Lee Wong, all of whom have done much work in the uh, arena of toric IOLs and posterior astigmatism. Well, uh, you've actually absolutely trained with the best people in the world, and um, so it's exciting for me to get a chance, uh, even on this interview, to learn from you and to hear what makes your practice special. And, um, you know, the Baylor nomogram and all the research that's come out about, you know, longer eyes, axial myopes, um, I just get excited whenever Baylor puts something out because it really moves the needle on outcomes. And, you know, we're all very curious as ophthalmologists, as cataract surgeons, how do we get better? How do we take our results from where, you know, we're doing okay, but we always are striving to do better. And it seems like Baylor, um, along with some other uh, institutes around uh, the country and around the world, um, really has been moving the needle forward. So I'm just really excited to talk to you about um, all the tools that you use. Um, So let's start a little bit with talking about when you have a cataract patient who comes into Baylor, what kind of measurements are you getting and what kind of devices are you using um, to get those uh, accurate measurements? Yeah, we definitely strive to do the best for our patients. And so even though there's some great uh, biometry and great topography out there, we still believe in measure multiple times and measure with multiple devices. And so we don't go with just one or two devices. We're very lucky. Um, Dr. Koch is a big advocate of patient outcomes, and therefore there's really you know, many toys and many tools that we can use at our institution. Um, currently, for most of our cataract patients, um, we are using a biometry data. We do like the lens star because of its accuracy, especially with low amounts of astigmatism and how many measurements it can take for us, plus the ability to throw out some of the standard deviations with that. Right. We definitely teach our technicians to look at the image carefully. It's very easy just to say, oh, these are the lens star measurements, but you have to have an active role and really work with your technicians to do that. In addition, we've got some great topographies. We are currently using the iOptics Cassini for the anterior curvature, and it does provide some information about the posterior cornea as well. We're using the Zemer Galilei as well. We really like the fact that it's got both the Placido image as well um, as the Scheinfluke image. And we kind of use it for both cataract surgery, but also for looking at some of the Placido image, maybe catching some subclinical anterior basement membrane dystrophy. We have two printouts that we do for the Galilei, one that has the general total, total corneal astigmatism and anterior corneal astigmatism and posterior corneal astigmatism, 
but a different one that actually prints out the placido in a very large format so that we can catch any subtle ABMD, any subtle areas where the mirrors are not accurate. And so, you know, we used to use other topographies as well. There are fantastic topographies out there. We kind of limited to these three because we feel like that's better for our clinic flow. And then, of course, we've also got the uh, aura available for us intraoperative if we needed to as well. Well, I think that's um, those are just amazing devices. And, you know, I, I agree exactly with what you're saying, that measuring multiple times with multiple different devices allows you to have that confidence, when all, especially when all of the, the numbers agree, at least within certain tolerances. Tell me a little bit about those cases, because we all have them when we do multiple measurements with different devices and we get different data. Walk me through how you go, you know, your process when you go through trying to pick a lens or trying to determine if your lens calculations are accurate. When they don't all agree, what, are, what, what device are you really looking to be your tiebreaker, so to speak? Well, with three devices, you definitely can get three different measurements depending on the cornea. I like to take a step back and try to figure out why I'm getting that. For low amounts of astigmatism, sometimes the magnitude is difficult. And so, you know, it may help to, to remeasure, but it may actually help to split the difference between the axis. I mean, I sometimes expect the axis to be very different, but those are also patients that you're rarely treating their astigmatism. For patients who are we're going to treat their astigmatism or at least address it, it sounds after all this electronic stuff that's out there, all this great um, technology, I take a pen and paper and write down the values because I don't want to get too bogged down by the details, write down the magnitude, write down the uh, um, the the axis. It'd be great one day if somebody can talk to all the machines and have you know an EMR service that actually prints that all out for you. Um, but for me, I actually just write it down and look at it. I look at the magnitude first and, and you know look at where the trend is. You know I sometimes do also get the IOL master as another opportunity to just measure something for our toric patients, but not always. And I look at those numbers and I really have liked. Actually, um, we've used the Ioptics Cassini, and I've actually very much liked the magnitude for that. It's really been very accurate as far as that goes. It's actually uh, correlated very well with repeatability studies, and it's correlated pretty well, actually, with our uh, biometry data. And so usually the LensStar and the Ioptics Cassini will, will match up nicely, and then the Galilei will provide a third measurement for us. As far as the axis goes, they, they usually all pretty much match between those three. When they don't match, I look at the picture and look at the, um, the anterior, look at the total corneal astigmatism, and look at the placido image on the Galilei. I find more and more that it's the subclinical uh, ABMD, subclinical dry eye that really makes the axis a big issue. And I have no problems calling the patient and remeasuring. Usually the patient's in the office with us and remeasuring it with either a different device or just taking a look at the patient. Sometimes you're seeing them the first time and seeing why why their access is not I used to you know go see all these patients preoperatively that evening before surgery go through all my IOL calculations but I've actually moved over to kind of addressing them right after right when I see the patient before I go in there it kind of helps me decide is this all I'm gonna do for this patient or not and so it's been a kind of a change and maybe that'll change the busier I get and I won't be able to do that but for now I think I have the luxury of thinking right before I go in to talk to the patient yeah no I think that's that's uh, that's uh, you know really good advice you know you have brought up uh, something a couple times that's kind of near and dear to my heart and that has to do with ocular surface disease and uh, especially anterior basement membrane dystrophy. I've been working on a study and will continue to work on and refine this, but I found that anterior basement membrane dystrophy is just an incredibly common uh, dystrophy and maybe actually more in the realm of ocular surface disease and, and maybe a, more of a degeneration than a dystrophy. But I've been actually doing some keratectomies on patients who have ABMD 
Um, I've just had some incredible surprises to the tune that you wouldn't even believe. You know, it's amazing how much irregularity those subtle little maps and uh, dots and fingerprints can cause, especially when they're located in the central three to five millimeters. Do you do that at all? Do you do keratectomies on patients? What are you, what are your criteria when you find um, ABMD? What would you say this ABMD is bad enough to treat? Do you have any criteria or thoughts on that that you'd like to share? Well, you know, one thing that I, I train the residents to, and I teach them, they all they all forget to do this, to lift the lid, um, mm-hmm. because a lot of times yeah. you'll see superior ABMD, right. and, and then when they stain, they need to look for that reverse staining pattern, because oftentimes you'll see that, you know, and the map dots will suddenly come out at you. And so those two things are very important. If I see actual clinical, I can just see it with a slit lamp, I have a very low threshold to counsel the patient. I kind of let them decide sometimes. If they have mild ABMD, the lens calculations look very good, the standard deviations weren't too far off on the bio. I'm pretty confident about my lens calculations. I'll aim them to be a little myopic, and if they just want to proceed with cataract surgery alone, because some of our patients are not as concerned with the refractive outcome, and, and, and doing epithelial debridement does delay their cataract surgery. And if they come in with a very mature cataract when they're 2080 or 2200, I kind of counsel them, look, your lens calculations may not be that accurate, let's aim for myopia, and then afterwards we may be able to do epithelial debridement or PTK. Otherwise, it would be much preferable to do the epithelial debridement before. Um, I have a lot of second opinions on patients who ended up hyperopic after their cataract surgery, and when I look at them clinically, they had a very apparent ABMD, and if they had just caught that ahead of time, they could have counseled the patient at the very least, but maybe even treated the patient ahead of time. Um, and then you have to be really careful about doing epithelial debridement or even PTK on a patient who's already had cataract surgery with the hyperopic outcome. You're going to make it more hyperopic, more uncomfortable, you know, more blurry. Exactly. And so I, I really, you know, I counsel the patient about it, and I let them decide. I, I take care of veteran patients who, who aren't that concerned necessarily all the time with it. I take care of some elderly patients who have very dense cataracts and are interested in going back to driving as quick as possible. For those patients, if they want to proceed and they just have mild to moderate ABMD, that's fine. Uh, if they have you know, significant ABMD, though, I tell them, listen, we really need to go forward with the epithelial debridement first. Well, I, I totally agree with you. You know, we have to always keep our patient at the center and we can make recommendations, but you know, we do need to you know, let them continue to uh, drive the process in that regard. So, you know, another thing that uh, is obviously a hot topic, especially when, it, when you know, we talk about Baylor and uh, is really the Baylor toric nomogram. And so talk to me a little bit about um, maybe the thought process behind that and what you all do when you implement the Baylor toric nomogram and, and kind of the trends that you're seeing with that. Well, much credit needs to be done to Dr. Koch, Dr. Weikert, and Dr. Wong, who, who really went into the work to do the Baylor nomogram. Dr. Koch was noticing that he was having these surprises with some of his patients after a toric placement. And so looking back, they had the Zemer Galilei data, which showed the posterior cornea. They found over time that although anterior corneal anterior corneal axis changed over time from with the rule to against the rule, the posterior cornea essentially stayed the same. And 85 to 90 percent of patients actually have with the rule posterior corneal astigmatism. You have to take a step back and think about it mathematically, the posterior cornea is negative. So really, it's the opposite of what the anterior cornea is. So if you have a with the rule anterior cornea and a with the rule posterior, you're actually subtracting out the posterior. And so that's why some of these patients were ending up with flipped axis over time. So there's really two things about it that you have to think about. One is the posterior cornea, and it helps to measure the posterior cornea because not all patients are actually with the rule. Some patients are against the rule, in which case the Baylor nomogram is not going to work for you because it's actually the opposite of what most patients are. So that's important, especially if you've got a device that measures the 
posterior cornea to think that not everybody has a device, though, and certainly some of these devices are very expensive. So looking at the Baylor nonogram, it does work for most patients if you just have anterior corneal measurements, and it's able to basically help you from flipping the axis on with the rule patients and help you from under-treating patients who have against the rule. We've got some great devices out, too, that are measuring the posterior cornea. We're not sure what to do with that number yet. I think more work needs to be done into it, and more work needs to be done as far as repeatability and predictability of those posterior corneal measurements and the total corneal astigmatism. But, you know, it sounds like it's going to be a great uh, avenue as far as measuring the cornea, the posterior cornea. In addition, the aura is kind of nice because it can actually measure both for you and give you maybe a tiebreaker if you're looking between, you know, two different torques if you have that available. You know, you can actually, you can actually, you know, have a bad outcome in two different ways if you don't put the right toric in. If you don't take account the posterior cornea, like we talked about, then you'll end up having some very odd results afterwards. In addition, a patient who's young is with the rule, and over time they become against the rule. We don't know why that is. I mean, there are some theories that maybe it's stromal degradation because of their aging. Uh, maybe it's epithelial remodeling because of the lid, because of exposure, because of tear film. But if you take a, a young person, um, leave them with some residual with the rule anterior, it'll actually help them over time because they'll become more against the rule over time. So you have to keep that in mind, too. Not only is the posterior cornea important, but also the changes in the anterior cornea are really important, too, especially considering the age of the patient. And I think that's a great point. You know, we think about the cornea and we think about numbers and static, you know, measurements, but this is a living tissue that does have the ability to change over time. And it's sometimes frustrating that we want it to be one thing and it's really another and we want rules, but the cornea doesn't doesn't know that it needs to have rules and doesn't follow our rules. But nevertheless, we really do appreciate the fact that the doctors like yourself and the ones that you work with have spent so much time and dedication and effort to making our profession better, especially with uh, reduction and elimination of astigmatism. And so, Sumitra, I just want to say, you know, thank you so much for taking some time to come in today to talk to us about, you know, your expertise. We clearly want to follow your progress throughout your career at Baylor. And um, if you ever want to come back on and you have other topics, you know, feel free. So thank you so much. Thanks, Gary. This has been great. Excellent. Excellent. This has been Ophthalmology Off the Grid with Dr. Gary Wirtz. Um, Until next time. Dr. Cannawall gave us some great pearls for astigmatism management before surgery, but I wanted to get some more insights into what to do when there are issues after surgery. To explore this, I sat down with Dr. John Birdall to hear his take and to learn more about astigmatismfix.com, a tool that helps surgeons fix residual astigmatism caused by common measurement deviations. This is Dr. Gary Wirtz with Ophthalmology Off the Grid, and today I have with me Dr. John Birdall. And uh, John and I go back uh, quite a ways to a time that he came to Lexington one snowy winter and uh, gave a talk on the LensX laser. And that actually piqued my curiosity on uh, being an early ad- adapter to uh, the Femto platforms. And uh, I was really impressed with the, the talk he gave that night. We became friends after that and uh, just had have had a, a lot of time since then to talk shop and compare notes and compare techniques. And so, uh, John, with that being said, I just want to say thank you for coming on the program today and uh, looking forward to hearing some insights that you might have to share with us about astigmatism today. I'm excited, Gary, and I remember that night well, too, because it was way warmer in snowy Kentucky than it was here in South Dakota. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. So, John, one thing that I think um, boggles physicians and especially um, cataract surgeons um, has to do with picking toric lenses, taking measurements, 
trying to figure out the right algorithm and perhaps the right technology, the right combination of tools to use to diagnose astigmatism accurately, preoperatively, and then what happens after surgery when maybe we didn't hit the mark. Either the lens has rotated, the patient has residual astigmatism and we can't quite figure out why, or um, you know the lens was the wrong power. Um, so there's a multitude of issues that can um, interplay and it really is a topic that I think is coming to the forefront of attention because it seems like toric lenses are really that low-hanging fruit for surgeons to enter the premium market. It's something that patients really understand the need for. It's very easy to communicate, much more so than a multifocal lens, for example. And so with patients um, understanding and wanting these, their astigmatism corrected and surgeons wanting to do that, um, it provides um, a lot of challenges to overcome. And so just real quickly, I'd love to know just at a high level, what do you do for patients who want to have uh, their astigmatism corrected and what kind of tools are you using preoperatively to diagnose their astigmatism? Yeah, so um, when a person has astigmatism, uh, we offer them a couple of different options. If their astigmatism is between a half diopter and 1.5 diopter, we're usually creating femto-assisted AKs. If it's greater than a diopter and a half, then probably a toric lens. Now, I'll fudge that a little bit and be a little quicker to use a toric lens and against the rule astigmatism at lower levels and um, maybe take AKs a little bit higher than 1.5, but not much if the astigmatism is with, with the rule. Sure. As far as the preoperative testing, I, I want at least a couple of confirmatory sources of Ks, right? So we use the NIDAC OPD scan, um, and, and I really like that. We also have used um, uh, eye trace, and we like that a lot too, um, in addition to the Ks that we get from our lens star. And then I pay attention to the axis of astigmatism on the manifest refraction and just if it's not lining up with where the Ks are at, then I assume that they've got some posterior corneal curvature or some lenticular astigmatism. You can't really know for sure which one it is. And, you know, I, I sure. also um, fret about that less than I used to because ultimately I'm relying very heavily on aura intraoperatively. And so, so even though preoperatively is where the decision is made, intraoperatively is where we try and nail it. Sure. And I think that's, <clears throat> I think that's a great um, set of tools you have to work with. We've really tried to streamline things in our practice. Um, we have the NIDEC OPD scan 3 as well. And we also have the LensStar. And it's really amazing how, how well they correlate. And when they don't, there's usually a reason. Usually they have some ocular surface disease problems such as um, you know, evaporative dry eye, meibomian gland dysfunction, or there's just something weird going on with the cornea. Like, for example, they have ectasia or they have um, EBMD or a Salzman's nodule causing some irregularities. So I agree with you. I feel really comfortable when things line up. Um, but I know some people will use eight different topographers or uh, corneal analyzers. And I, it, at some point, you have to kind of declare what you're going to use and what you're going to trust. And so I kind of find that you've got to find one or two, well, probably more than one, but you need to find two or three, but I don't think more than three devices uh, to use routinely on your patient's um, to find out what is really going on with their cornea. I think beyond that, you start kind of chasing your tail and you don't know what to, what to trust. Do you agree with that? 
Yeah, yeah, I do agree with that. I mean, more information isn't always better. And some of these machines aren't designed to give you uh, the same information that you get. From, you know, so, for example, let's say Baryon gives you a little bit different case than a Lenstar gives you because it's measuring different points. And um, it makes it hard to develop a uh, intuition about what you're going to trust. And so it took me a while before I decided that what I'm really going to trust is is averometry. That's going to be my final common pathway, but the other things are going to help me out. And, um, and I wanted to back up just a second because I think that it's always worth um, talking about correcting astigmatism in terms of what our goal is. The patient doesn't really care about astigmatism. They care about how they're going to use their eyes after surgery. And so I really think about it in terms of do you want to wear glasses? Are you hoping not to have to wear glasses after cataract surgery for distance or not having to wear them much at all? And then take that approach first with, with the patient. How do you want to use your eyes after surgery? And one of, and, and early in your kind of monologue at the beginning, um, you talked about how the toric lens is low-hanging fruit. And I think that that's mostly accurate. But, you know, we've all heard, well, at least do torics, right? You can't really screw those up. They're the low-hanging fruit. They're easy. And I think that we've learned, especially with, you know, competitive IOLs on the market now, that it you don't always nail it with the toric lens. And I think it's a big reason why presbyopia treatments have failed because we are not going to be able to treat presbyopia until we can consistently treat astigmatism well. And frankly, I don't think that we're there yet with consistently... Um, treating astigmatism well enough. We do pretty good, but 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 not great. You know, and I think that's a that's a great point, and and something to you know along the same lines. When I talk to patients about correcting astigmatism, I never use that term. I always talk about reducing their astigmatism because. The reality is most patients, if you refracted them, they could pick up a quarter or a half or maybe even more. But the reality is if you're reducing their astigmatism, these patients notice a qualitative improvement in how they see versus you know comparing their post-op vision to their pre-op vision. And so I think you're exactly right. It's all about goals. It's about discussing what the patient wants. And the reality is I think that when I say low-hanging fruit, I think the patient's are more forgiving um, of leaving a little residual astigmatism, even though, though that's not our goal. Our goal is, is perfection. But typically, patients um, are a little bit easier to please in the toric category because they're seeing such a tremendous difference based on what they've been used to. I think that that's right. And you're only fixing one problem, whereas with presbyopia, you better fix astigmatism and presbyopia. With astigmatism, you only need to reduce the astigmatism. Exactly. I totally agree. Now, John, one other tool that you have created that really goes beyond just the normal average physician's understanding and, and um, desire to correct and understand toric IOLs specifically is your website, astigmatismfix.com. Um, can you talk a little bit about that tool for those out there who may have not used that or haven't heard of it and discuss maybe some of the things that you've noticed um, as you maybe been able to look at the traffic patterns on there in terms of what things are needing to be corrected and why? Yeah, so astigmatismfix.com is a free website that we created that helps surgeons that after they've implanted a toric lens and if they have an unsatisfactory residual astigmatism, they can go in and type in a couple of straightforward numbers, basically your manifest refraction, which toric lens you put in the eye and where it's at now, 
and it will calculate for you um, where to rotate it to to minimize the astigmatism. And how it kind of came about is I was doing my fellowship with uh, Dick Lindstrom, Dave Harden, Tom Samuelson, Liz Davis, Sherman Reeves, and the crew at Minnesota Eye Consultants. Um, Harden says to me, hey, you were a math teacher. Figure this problem out. I got this patient. I put a T6 lens in them, and they've got residual astigmatism, and I, uh, I don't know exactly what I should do. And so we put together a, you know, kind of a, a computer program to calculate that. And, um, and so every once in a while on the Askris list server, whatever, somebody would mention this problem and I'd send them the spreadsheet and I found myself spreading, sending the spreadsheet out, you know, a few times a week. And so ultimately I said, yeah, I'm going to save myself time and make a website let everybody go to it themselves so, and, and save some, you know, save some electrons on email. And, um, and I was astounded by how many people used it. We get uh, just less than a thousand entries a month. Um, now, not all of those are unique, probably about half or so are unique entries a month. So we're probably getting 400 to 500 unique entries a month. And so that really shocked me because this problem is much bigger uh, than we thought that it was. And so because we've got this huge database, we're able to look at it and say, what does this mean? What can we learn from this? Why are people having residual astigmatism? And, and there's a couple of things that we learned from analyzing over 30,000 uh, entries. Number one is that when residual astigmatism occurs, about 70% of the time, it's because the preoperative measurements were not indicative of what would be the ideal final location of the IOL. And so I'm going to say that one more time. The preoperative measurements weren't indicative of where the ideal position of the IOL should be at the end. And then what we also found was that when there's residual astigmatism, about 70% of the time the IOL is rotated more than five degrees. So 50% of the time, you know, think of a Venn diagram, it's an overlap of those two. And it's a combination of those two and compounding errors that gets you to a place where they have, you know, three quarters or, or more of astigmatism. Um, now, that's not to say that the, the pre-op measurements were wrong. It could be that there was a posterior corneal curvature that's surprising, and Doug Koch and their team has taught us so much about that. And one of the things that I think is, un, you know, so just to reiterate for everybody, you know, Doug Koch and, and uh, Liz Yu and team would say that, uh, and Mitch Weikert and everybody would say that on the posterior cornea, there's about point three or so diopters of against the rule astigmatism. And so, so over on average, on average. And so in most cases, you should correct for that and overcorrect against the rule astigmatism and undercorrect with the rule astigmatism, right? And that goes along with the lore that we've had for years. Lead people with a little bit of with the rule astigmatism. I believe that's not because there's some benefit to it optically. I believe that it was a fudge factor that we just evolved into because we didn't want to overcorrect them. Anyway, um, but that's an average measurement. And when you look at the data, about 17% of people in Doug Koch's study show that they've got with the rule astigmatism on their posterior cornea. So you, if you just give them an average, four out of five times, you're going to improve people. But one out of five times, 
you're going to make them worse than if you use no nomogram at all. And, and so just like we don't give uh, everybody a 22 diopter IOL anymore and we don't give everybody a size 9 shoe, I'll take a measurement over an estimation anytime I can get it. And so that's why I think things that are trying to measure the posterior cornea or things like intraoperative aberrometry are so helpful. So that's one point. But the second point, and possibly even more important, is surgically induced astigmatism. And um, I like having this conversation with folks and ask them, what's your surgically induced astigmatism? And everybody like me says that it's 0.3 diopters of flattening in the axis of my incision. And that's right. And that's what I get too. But when I looked at my histogram and my standard deviation, man, it is all over the place. And so I'm like, God, am I worse than everybody else's? Turns out I'm not. I'm just like everybody else's. I went into the literature and everybody's got a standard, you know, a flattening of about 0.3, 0.4 diopters of flattening in the axis of the astigmatism, but the standard deviation is about 0.7 diopters. And one standard deviation includes 68% of the data. So that means, you know, 32% of the data is outside plus or minus 0.7 from 0.3. It's a third of the time you're inducing over a diopter of astigmatism. And so the, the corneal biomechanics and the wound healing and all that kind of stuff, I think plays a much bigger role than any of us would like to admit. John, I, I have to stop you there and, and, and totally uh, agree and tell you that you've made me feel a lot better. I just went through this calculation about a month ago, and um, I found the exact same thing. I was about 0 0.3, 0 0.4 in the axis of my astigmatism, or in the axis of my incision, but there were a couple cases that were beyond a diopter, and I thought, what happened? Am I, am I just a bad surgeon, or what? You know, what's going on? But you, know, you made me feel a lot better that it's not just me. That these corneas, you know, they're, they're living tissue that will react variably to incisions. And I think we, we sometimes overlook that and think about the cornea as simply something that gets us access to the anterior segment. <laughs> I, think, I think that's exactly right. And there's a couple of things. One, there's nothing more humbling than looking carefully at your own outcomes. Number, number two is when I turn... Uh, my human nature is, God, if I'm this bad, I really hope there's other people that are this bad and struggling with it too so I can commiserate with you, Gary, and at least we have each other in our um, surgically induced astigmatism uh, club del with delinquencies. <laughs> yes. Got it. Got it. So, John, for, for people who are out there, um, if you had a couple pearls to give them, because it sounds like the biggest problem is really garbage in, garbage out. Uh, you said 70% of the patient, of the people who go on your uh, website, astigmatismfix.com, to try to figure out what's going on with their post-op outcomes. It really has to do with data that is not correct. What kind of pearls would you, would you give them, either for pre-op data or maybe um, even surgically, um, any pearls you might have for preventing rotation or, or maybe patients that you might want to do something a little bit differently if they're perhaps a high myope with a large bag. Sure. My biggest first pearl is have a plan to get them into the end zone. And so there's going to be a percentage of people that you either have a surprising surgically induced astigmatism or, um, or that it rotated a little bit or your pre-op measurements weren't right. And if you don't have a willingness to either do an exchange or rotation or laser vision correction or access to somebody who does, 
you're setting yourself up for failure on patience once in a while. And so think about the end game in mind and how you're going to get people happy. That's the, I think the most important thing because we can always get, almost always get them to a place where they're happy if we're willing to take step number two and three, if we need to not just, you know, flop a toric lens in there. Um, so, so that's number one. Um, number two is that I, I um, High astigmatism is a different animal than low astigmatism. If you've got one diopter of astigmatism on the cornea and you put in a one diopter toric lens and you're off by 10 degrees, you lose 30% of the effectivity. So whatever, they've got 0.3 diopters of astigmatism left over, everybody's happy. You do that same thing with a T9 that has 4.11 diopters of astigmatism and you've got a third of that left, which is one and a half diopters of astigmatism, everybody's unhappy. So that's why I think that um, that lower astigmatism is a much different animal than the high astigmatism. And, and then the, the next pearl I have is get your alignment right. 10 degrees is not that much in the operating room. And so you've got to get alignment right. And then number four and, and um, is I, I think really important uh, think about some sort of aberrometry approach because it's measuring things that we can't measure otherwise. It measures the posterior corneal curvature, which other devices can do, but it also measures surgically induced astigmatism, which we've already talked about the variability there. At least you're measuring that after the incision has been created. Yeah, I, I agree with you, John. I think that all those things are, are really, really important to think about. Um, and so all, all the pearls you've provided us, it's really just a treasure trove for either folks just starting out um, on this journey of correcting astigmatism or perhaps folks who've been doing it for a long time and are still uh, banging their head against the wall when things don't go right, which it does happen to all of us. So, you know, with that being said, John, I just want to thank you for your time. Thank you for your insights. And, um, you know, hopefully this will uh, benefit a lot of folks who are going to be listening in. So, so thanks again. Gary, it was really fun. Thanks for having me, and I appreciate you a lot, man. Okay, this is Ophthalmology Off the Grid with Dr. Gary Works. Thanks. Thanks for listening to this episode of Ophthalmology Off the Grid. To hear more, download other episodes on iTube.net. Until next time. Ophthalmology Off the Grid is supported by Elevro from Alcon.